Ooh, a spicy question. I <laughs> because love it. Because the writing is sort of everything, right? Like you could can fix plot holes, but if the yeah. writing... So some there. readers love that and some readers are like, but I wanted more of this. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a gamble. Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by an award-winning former investigative journalist and an international best-selling novelist whose second novel, The Other Mothers, is out right now. It's Catherine Faulkner. Hello, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Let's talk about the new book, The Other Mothers. Tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So The Other Mothers tells the story of ex-journalist Tash, who is trying to relaunch her career as a freelancer after the birth of her son, um, not least because she needs to fund his childcare place in an exclusive neighbourhood in North London um, and keep up socially with the other mothers there, who, unlike her, all live in these huge, elegant London houses in leafy avenues around Highbury Fields. And when the body of a young nanny is found in a local beauty spot and it's written off as an accident, Tash becomes convinced that a murder's been missed and that this is the scoop she's been waiting for. But her investigation soon leads her uncomfortably close to the other mothers that she has befriended at her son's playgroup. And then she starts to wonder whether maybe there's another reason they invited her so readily into her into their exclusive little clique. And she starts to wonder who exactly is investigating who. It's great stuff. Um, I, and I, I was just looking at um, with this book and also your your first book, um, Greenwich Park, Waterstones Book of the Year 2022, which was set around antenatal classes and that sort of culture um especially the sort of pressure of everyone else everyone else seeming to do the whole thing sort of perfectly this new novel the other mothers it's not a direct sequel but it sort of has like it feels a bit like a sequel I guess it's sort of sequential, isn't it? Because <laughs> that's kind of how my life has been the last few years, I guess, you know, I had the kind of weird experience of experiencing pregnancy for the first time and NCT and all that I did find really, really strange and really psychologically interesting. And then, yeah, and then, then I guess the next thing is that you are catapulted into this world of young motherhood with the, the playgroup gates and the nursery gates and the encountering the other parents. And so, yeah, I, I, I think there's probably a reason for that. I mean, all writers, I, I think, to some degree, write sort of with elements of their own experiences and their lives within it, whether consciously or subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Tash, the protagonist, an ex-journalist like yourself, I'm wondering, as also a mother yourself, and like like you said, you know, you went through the sort of experiences of those uh, antenatal classes, and then now, and then the sort of playgroup things like that. How much of the Um, because a big part of this book is the sort of dynamics of the parent friends. Mm. How much of that is sort of inspired by your own experiences? Oh, definitely. I mean, loads of it. Um, Which is not to say that I kind of rip off my friends for characters, (laughs) which is always the suspicion about writers and probably why the reason nobody tells me anything anymore at the playgroup gates. (laughs) I'm cut out of all social interaction. No, I'm not. Um, I think that, yeah, I think like all writers do the same things we kind of we're little magpies we look at we we notice little things in people sometimes it's a person who you meet so briefly you know just like a friend of a friend who you meet for five seconds and they're just a little bit there's just something about them it's just a little bit interesting and different and that can just get you thinking about a whole character quite often though it's also things you notice in yourself you know like I uh, for example with 
with both Tash and Helen, um, so Tash is the main character in The Other Mothers and Helen is the main character in Greenwich Park, they're both people who find they find themselves a bit anxious in those social situations where they're faced with the other parents and worry about what people are thinking of them and things like about them and things like that. And, and I think those are things that we all feel and they're, they're things that everyone experiences. Sometimes you don't have to be a particularly anxious person, I think, to find the school gate drop off or the nursery drop off a bit unstructured and difficult sometimes, I think. Yeah. So I think sometimes it's about leaning into those things within yourself that are, that you notice those little insecurities or wrinkles and and just exaggerating them basically and thinking, wow, what if, you know, that was, what if not only was that kind of a really big part of your personality that you found the situation hugely anxious, but then what if there was also a really sinister character there who was doing all these strange things and then how would that, how would the dynamic kind of ratchet up from there? Yeah, I think especially with, especially with like contemporary fiction, which is w- w- both of your books, what you what you write, the the characters are always going to be inspired by something that you've experienced but like you say it's usually it, it won't be that any character is is like a translation of one of your friends it'll be a characteristic that like maybe someone you met has and you've extrapolated that into a character itself yeah exactly i mean none of my friends are in it sinister enough to be interesting to me <laughs> for psychological fiction sadly but sometimes you just meet a person and you just think wow that's interesting like they're they're just you know when you meet somebody and there's just something a bit off about them I find I just find that fascinating I'm like what is it about you that I find a bit sinister or that I find myself pulling away and I love to kind of dig into that so I'm I (laughs) sometimes you're not making a bit of a beeline for those people (laughs) because you think oh yeah you're an interesting character you know what else it is is I think is um, and this is why I think if any of your friends listen to this, that they're safe is because if you're friends with someone, you know them too well. And I think it's n- the not knowing someone it's the, Oh, I met this person and they said this really weird thing. And then yeah. your head is now filling in the blanks. Exactly. It's yeah. that imaginative <laughs> space, that negative space within which you can paint your whole, because you don't know them well, Yeah, yeah. that, that allows you the imaginative space to kind of invent this like really this kind of darker character or this whole dark background and that's why they came across in that slightly weird way yeah exactly so do you do these stories for you do they kind of originate with the characters definitely or the situation kind of quite often with my when I write I I start off with a yeah with a couple of characters and a kind of specific dynamic between them so with Greenwich Park I was really interested in the idea of two women who meet form a friendship in kind of circumstances where it seems sort of convenient and then one of them ends up wanting to back away from that friendship and the other one doesn't and is actually trying to really get their claws into that person and really weasel their way into their life and I thought that was a really interesting dynamic and it was something I'd kind of observed at work you know there was a person at work who I wasn't that mega keen on she kept wanting to go for coffee I mean there's nothing like really sinister about it but I was just like this is interesting because there's no rules for this there's no you know with romantic relationship the rules are quite clear 
with this there isn't and I found that dynamic really interesting and it was only then and I already kind of had that kind of percolating in my mind as an idea for a story and then I went to my antenatal classes and I thought this is the moment where these two characters will meet because this is just such a weird environment and I can see how you would feel under pressure to make friends with these people and so you kind of leap into being friends with someone exchanging details arranging to go out for coffee because you're all going to the same thing and la 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 and you're expected to make friends at NCT classes um and then and then suddenly realizing oh maybe not and yeah and then with the other mothers um it was sort of a couple of things I did find I thought I kind of wanted to do something around the playgroup gates because I just thought they were so interesting psychologically but I also had the um some of it came from the as you mentioned the main character is a journalist I was a journalist for many years and I was really interested in the idea of how a murder could be missed so um the story of this nanny sophie whose body is discovered in the woodbury wetlands which is near where i live and it's written off as an accident but tash is convinced there's more to it that actually came from a real life case that i covered as a young journalist which was an inquest so when you're training as a journalist you go to you kind of have to cover all the different sorts of court and understand the procedures and how they work and what you are and aren't allowed to report that's quite a big part of your training so you spend a lot of time in court and coroner's courts and and on this particular occasion it was a coroner's court and we were just and and when you're doing your training it's not really about what cases you're covering it's just about the kind of process of covering it so you didn't any old thing can come up sometimes the inquests are really boring but there was just one came up when I was sitting there um where a young person had died after meeting somebody online and they'd taken some substances and he'd taken a lot more and he'd ended up dead and it was just kind of like well we don't really know much about what happened that night so this is just this misadventure or an open verdict I guess it was an open verdict actually I was just kind of like, hang on, this is, this sounds really dodgy to me. I mean, obviously it could have been completely innocent, but also this could have been a murder. Like this person could have, how do we know that he wanted to take that substance? How do we know that he knew that it was in his drink or whatever? So I was just fascinated by it. And I, I did a lot of research and talked to coroners and pathologists and they all told me that, yeah, like absolutely a murder could be missed in that way because quite often there just isn't much evidence about what happened. And on TV, you know, pathology, forensic pathology, if you know, if you watch, um, oh, what's that program? Bones? <laughs> no, the one with the really hot pathologist, Amelia <laughs> Fox. She's a forensic pathologist and it's been going on the BBC forever. And she's always got a different hairstyle, even though she's supposed to be being a forensic <laughs> pathologist. Her hair's always like really curly and styled. One uh, Silent witness. Silent witness. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to start that bit again. So... <laughs> When you see Silent Witness and programs like that, where the forensic pathologist is there and they just look at this body and they're like, oh, well, they obviously died between the hours of 4.41, 4.47, because look, you know, you could have, but that it's just not that exact a science at all. Yeah, um, It's actually really, really hard. And especially if a body's been in water, as my character, it, as it has in my scenario, uh, that can mask a lot of subtle signs of injury or, and it can also lead to the sort of decomposition, which makes it really difficult to tell lots of things about what happened to the person before they died. So I was just fascinated in it, by how much of a gray area that actually left for something to be missed uh, or not recorded properly or or, yeah, so I, I was I was fascinated by the idea that somebody could be murdered and no one could even realise that a murder had happened. And um, I really wanted to write a story about that. So it was kind of both things, really. Okay, right. So the, the sort of two separate inspirations and you were like, oh, I can kind of work these together and, and, and 
create one coherent story here. Yeah, exactly. Because I love the murder, the missed murder idea and the journalist investigating it. But that's a bit too crimey, <laughs> Rube one crimey for me. Yeah, it's yeah. a bit like that's not really what, because I'm interested in lots of other things. I, I like plot like that and that's what keeps you going. But I also yeah. like writing about really what it's like to be psychologically to be a woman and a mother and juggling work and kids and wanting to have your career, but also wanting a good life for your kids but also the pressure cooker that is London and the fact that everything that you want seems out of reach in London because everything costs so much money and yet there are these mysterious people who seem to have loads of money and these huge houses and who are they and what's going on and I think naturally we have a bit of a fascination with those people because you're like how did you do that like how did um so all of that I wanted to write about too so it kind of all became the same story okay that's interesting because you're so right because it's I wouldn't say like it's a very different style to write something which is entirely about social dynamics um, without having that driving plot. So I think that's a really good balance that you've struck there. I'm wondering with those two kind of now hearing how this all came together, was are you someone that and obviously you spent a lot of time writing through your kind of career in journalism. Are you the person that kind of plans all this stuff out and it's sort of very nicely mapped before you start writing it? Or is it more, here's a couple of ideas, let's just run with it, see where it goes? Yeah, definitely the latter for me. <laughs> um, I um, Not that I don't, I'm a huge plotter, but this sounds like completely weird and back to front, but I kind of do it afterwards. <laughs> um, oh, okay. The process of writing the first draft for me is a completely creative flowy process. And if I don't know how to do it any other way, I kind of know what's happening a couple of chapters ahead. Once I get into my draft, Um, I kind of know what's going to happen immediately next. And I know vaguely what the destination is, but I definitely don't know what all the stops are going to be on the way. So I, um, I'm, I'm really more of a pantser and I do tend to kind of just write the first draft without, I think if I plot, I've tried plotting, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I have tried it and I do think it's amazing if you can do it and it would be a lot more simpler and more efficient. But I, if I write out, okay, this is what's going to happen in this scene. This is what's going to happen in this scene on a big spreadsheet and then just write it. It just wouldn't, I wouldn't find that rewarding. It would be a bit paint by numbers for me. I just can't, for me, you have to let the character, frustrating as it is, and it does mean that a lot of my words end up in the bin and a lot of my ideas end up in the bin. But I do think you have to allow your characters to kind of surprise you a bit sometimes when you're writing a book. I have found that and that leads to kind of some of your best ideas. Um, for example, when I was writing Greenwich Park, there's two characters who are having a secret affair and I didn't actually know they were having an affair until I wrote this certain scene. And then I realized that about them. I was like, that's what's weird is going to be weird. That's what's going to be creating the conflict in this scene is that these two are having an affair. Um, Um, And I, um, and I just think that's part of the huge fun of it. And actually you have to keep it. It has to be fun. I mean, otherwise you can't writing a book is such a huge undertaking. If you're not enjoying it and you can't hang on to the kind of joy in the process, however you find that, I don't think you're going to end up being able to do it because it's huge to actually complete a book. It's a massive amount of work. And if it's not joyful, then it's not really something that you're going to end up, you'll just end up throwing in the towel or I would. So, so yeah, that's kind of how I do it. I write my book. It kind of comes together as I go, but then what I do is I do a a lot of editing and going back over and thinking, right, are the twists coming at the right points? 
because I will have felt my way through it. But sometimes it'll I've overwritten the beginning, for example, and it'll take me too long to get to that bit where it really gets going. So I'll condense the first few char- chapters or sometimes I've got to a twist too quickly and I haven't kind of haven't I need to pull out that moment and make it more of a moment you know things like that so that I'll do a lot of that work subsequently in different in in separate drafts and so like it kind of um the plotting I I think of plotting as kind of it's like that process it's like making it work for the reader and hitting the right kind of twists and the right exciting bits at the right time it kind of happens later weird as it sounds yeah no I know what you mean it's the first draft is kind of like a brainstorm like you are writing it start to finish in a way but it's, as you say, purely creative. Yeah, which yeah. is really joyful. I mean, writing first drafts at the beginning when you kind of don't know how it's all going to pan out and it's just, you're just having ideas and yeah, it's really wonderful. So with your first book, I assume that was kind of written, um, you would have written the whole thing sort of by yourself um, and then it would have once been signed, you'd work with an editor. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So I wrote it... Um, I, I did write it on my own, but I um, I was in the Faber Academy novel writing course, which was actually really, really helpful to me. It gave me a kind of structure, I guess. So I was, I was getting feedback a bit, you know, for, on bits yeah. of it from the tutor and a lot of encouragement from that course. And that was great. And then at the end of that course, um, you have this day where you read a bit of your book. Um, it's, uh, it's called Agents Day and they invite agents to come to the Faber Academy and listen to these new writers who've just completed this course. And if any agents kind of sound, if any of the books sound interesting, then agents can come and approach you and talk to you. And at the end of that, I had quite a lot of agents come and say, this sounds great. You know, I'd love to read more of this. Um, and that was hugely exciting and made me feel that, you know, this was something, you know, I had something here and that kind of spurred me on to finish the first draft. And and then, yeah, and then after that, I sent sent it out to those agents and then also a kind of couple of like dream agents that I really, in a perfect world, would have loved to, to sign with. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and I got lots of yeses. So that was exciting. So then I signed with my agent, Maddie Milburn, who's amazing. And then she worked with me to get it, get the book up to scratch. And she had quite a few editorial ideas. And that was actually really great to work with her first, just to get it in the best shape it could be. And then we yeah. submitted it to publishers. And then you edited it again. Yes. So once you, so I was lucky I had a number of publishers interested in it. And so once you've chosen and signed with a publisher, you go through the editorial process with them. But I, I had the opportunity to meet with them before I decided which publisher to go with um, because a number of them wanted it and it went to auction. So I got to kind of have this dreamy day where I went around different wow. publishing houses. <laughs> and was served cake and oh please come to us you know it was really really nice it was properly dreamy um and I really I loved Alison Hennessy at Bloomsbury Raven as soon as I met her I thought she's she just she got I mean there it was a really hard choice actually because I met some amazing editors that day but Alison yeah. really seemed to not only get the book but she talked a lot about her authors in a way that I really loved and how much she saw it as not just about one book, but a career and a brand and, you know, it, all of that sort of stuff. And she seemed really, she, she doesn't, they don't publish a lot at Bloomsbury Raven. They're quite, it's quite a small list and each book is really looked after and treated 
um, you know, with a lot of care. And I really liked that. So I, I, I went with her and, and I liked, and she talked to me about her editorial ideas for the book. And I thought she was right about all of those. And so I knew that it wasn't going to be something which was going to kind of throw up huge conflicts or anything once we got started. Yeah. Um, and it was quite straightforward, really. She, you know, I liked all her ideas and we bounced back and forth with track changes on a few different versions. And um, I don't remember it being the huge trauma that my second book was, I have to say. <laughs> Everyone says that. Quite straightforward. <laughs> Everyone seems to find the second book much more difficult. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was more ambitious with the other mothers. It's structurally more ambitious, and it's a more complex book, and it's yeah. deeper, and it's. But I sort of hadn't realised that I was attempting something really difficult because the other mothers is told by through two timelines. So you have the timeline of Tash, who's the journalist investigating the murder, but then you also have the story of Sophie, who is the nanny who died. Mm-hmm. and bit by bit you hear her story too and it unfolds over the course of Tash's investigation um so it's two timelines and they have to obviously kind of talk to each other um and be the but it is the same book it's not just like two separate things that you can write separately and um and that's the kind of bit that I hadn't quite clicked in my head and my my editor was kind of like you know you've attempted something really really difficult here it's kind of like oh have I um but I had and it took a while to get it right was it good when obviously when you do the second book you're not writing it by yourself anymore like you presumably were pitching ideas to Alison and she's kind of was she kind of working with you the whole way from sort of inception well what was actually really great was that Alison kind of understood that what I needed was quite a hands-off approach at the beginning okay um and she so I did pitch the idea to her talked to her a lot about what I had planned for the book and she really liked it and she just kind of trusted me so I did get on with it by myself for quite a long time and then she gave me quite detailed feedback on the first draft the first draft wasn't really working very well um and then actually she went off on maternity leave so I had another editor for a while um so and also there was covid and everything was a bit up in the air so it ended up being quite a long process and I had a couple of people work on on it with me but I um you know we got we got there in the end and uh but she wasn't yeah I, it's not it, for me it hasn't been too she's not very interventionist at the first she's not kind of demanding updates all the time uh, which is really good she's really kind of she really trusts me to crack on with it, which is really nice. Okay, that's good. Well, I imagine as a former journalist, you're probably pretty good with deadlines. <sighs> is that true? <laughs> <laughs> or not? I, <laughs> I mean, it's hard though, because I mean, for example, with this third book that I'm writing now, I've got to deliver it by the end of this year. And that sounds fine. I mean, we're only in the summer. I've got a couple of chapters This year's going written. really quickly. Uh, <laughs> no, but then every month just seems to go by. Yeah. And really quickly, and this between school strikes and everything, I just, this year has been so bitty. And the publication, obviously, I've done a lot of publicity and things like that. Like I was on Times Radio yesterday and then had a newspaper interview. And by the time you've done a few things like that every week, you don't end up with a lot of headspace and it takes quite a lot of time to kind of get into the headspace of writing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I am not making excuses. I will have the dead. <laughs> I will meet that deadline. But yeah, deadlines when you're a journalist are quite straightforward. It's like 400 words by, you know, 4 p.m. Yeah. It's very different to saying, are you going to be able to write a new novel by yeah, January? Yeah. <laughs> you're kind of like, yeah. <laughs> and the answer is you don't really know if the answer is yes. But I think... I think it sounds like the key is communication and 
if you're not going to be able to meet deadlines, you need to let them know early so they can change things around. I think it does happen. But um, yeah, look, it's all pretty new to me. To be honest. <laughs> Still figuring it being out. Being a journalist was a <laughs> lot simpler. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, speaking of being a journalist, I do, before we get onto the, the, the final questions, I do, I do want to ask quickly because you, um, you are actually an award-winning, um, investigative journalist. You won the Cudlip Award for public interest journalism, which was for undercover work. I've never spoken to an undercover journalist before. What, <laughs> that you know of. <laughs> that I know of, true. <laughs> before the hit We're piece comes out. We're very good at being secretive about it. <laughs> Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, what what kind of does it entail? What like what's the process like of being undercover as a journalist? Um, well, it is interesting. It's unlike any other journalism, really, because you're kind of acting. So, using any kind of subterfuge, so any kind of basically not telling the truth about who you are, and not in any kind of situation when you're a reporter, you need the first thing you do is always just say, I'm a reporter, I'm reporting for X, and this is what I'm doing. And I'd like to ask you some questions. You know, you have to be upfront about what, who you are and what you're doing. Yeah. As a matter of course, and anytime you're not doing that, you're, you, you're considered to be using subterfuge. And so you're, you, so what, whatever level, even if it's just making a phone call and actually not mentioning that you're a journalist, you need to get legal approval. There's a whole process. So all of that is quite, um, there's quite an involved process leading up to it. And in order to get the sign off to use any kind of subterfuge, um, you need to establish that you can't get the information any other way. Um, and that there's a public interest in the use of subterfuge to gain that information. So you've got to prove those two things. So there's kind of legal bar you have to reach. And then at the point at which it's all signed off and agreed and, you know, uh, agreed at a senior editorial and legal level that you're going to use subterfuge in order to get some information, whatever that information may be, um, then you kind of work out how you're going to do it. And if it's just sort of telephone or online, then you don't need to do a huge amount of subterfuge. But I have used, you know, you can just, you, you basically make a phone call or, or do an interview and you don't say who you are. But in some cases, it's more involved in that and you're going into a scenario or taking a job or something like that where you are actually presenting yourself physically in a situation where you're pretending to be someone you're not. So in those cases, um, in order to kind of get the evidence, quite often you'll try and use undercover cameras. So then if you're doing that, then what you kind of end up doing is going off to see this um this bloke in Hatton Garden who is, is an expert on sewing clothes and cameras into your clothes. And um, you go off and he kind of takes some of your tops or dresses and find, works out which ones are best to hide hide cameras in and he grumbles about the fact that you're a woman because that's more difficult because the kind of <laughs> the chest area tends to kind of interfere with exactly where you want the button but anyway he always makes it work and he's very good and um and then you go off and uh you do your do your do your thing and then you what's weird is that for example the one where I won the Cudlip award that you mentioned that was for a, an investigation we did into a call center which was harassing elderly and vulnerable people for charitable donations on behalf of these major charities and it led to a huge overhaul of fundraising practices in the charity sector which was which was really good because um, yeah. there was a lot of shock about what was going on and so I had to um, train as a call handler and go into the call center and, and record what was going on in order to, in order to do that. And, um, yeah, so that was, um, that was an example of one where you're just kind of, uh, <laughs> you've got a job, 
your pretend job <laughs> where your oh real God. job is to gather the footage, <laughs> but you also have to do your actual job and kind of try and learn what the job is and how to actually do it. But your real job is to obviously record footage of what's going on. And, and so sometimes you find yourself sort of in trouble with your supervisor. It's like, why did you walk over to that corner of the room when you're supposed to be working? It's like, oh, I, I just needed the layer, you know. And oh then you've also got the additional pressure of making sure no one finds out who you are. And then after you've done your day's work, you know, as you're in your fake job, <laughs> You've then got the news desk on the phone saying, right, okay, I need a debrief. What happened? La, 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 la. And then you've got to write a great big memo. I mean, these days, at least you've got this AI software which can transcribe things for you. But back then, we didn't have that. So it was just like hours and hours of transcribing, working out what the kind of key bits were, you know, that were going to be newsworthy or important evidentially start building, you know, how much trying to work out, have we got enough evidence to pull out now? Um, and do our story and all of that sort of stuff. And then you have to go in for your next shift, you know, so it's pretty oh exhausting. It's pretty exhausting and full on doing undercover work. And, yeah, it um, sounds intense. It's intense and it's psychologically intense. And actually, I didn't yeah. want to do it once I had children. I, d- I just didn't want to do <laughs> yeah. it anymore. Um, you just I, don't have I the time, into- right? It was, I didn't have the, I, I just wouldn't want it. To, I don't know why. I just didn't want to put myself at risk and yeah. I didn't want to have that psychological pressure going on when when I, I just I don't know there was just something about having children I just didn't want to do it anymore it was scary I mean because yeah, it could be all my only understanding of it is from like movies and television and all you see there is like them being undercover for a few minutes and it's all very like oh this is spy work and things like that no a lot of it's very dull actually yeah, <laughs> and then they'll be there but there's just this moment yeah you're just working a really <laughs> yeah. like blue collary kind of job and um and it's so boring um and then there will just be these moments where you think ah like you know when i would see one of these supervisors sort of haranguing one of the other call handlers to like get money out of someone or something and then you just kind of think okay this is what i'm here for this is this five seconds i need to get it otherwise you know the whole thing's been wasted yeah yeah it's quite full on and then you go home and have to do your real job Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. that's mental. Wow. Well, I was gonna I was gonna say <laughs> it doesn't sound like it at all now though, but I was gonna say there's probably an element of a skill set there that you can translate into novel writing because like you said, you know, both in both of your novels, you've been in a lot of the um scenarios and situations that you kind of present in those. Not as obviously you weren't thinking like, I'm gonna I'm gonna write all this down about you guys, but there's a part of you that's kind of like listening to that and taking it in and like it is a sort of very far removed slightly undercover subconscious version of that I guess yeah it's um there is something about I mean yes if you're the sort of person who can imagine as another character I guess you have to have a little bit of of that of that imagination probably helps you in both 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 of those weird weird (laughs) jobs that I've had (laughs) job number one pretending to be someone else job number two spending time making up imaginary characters uh, all day long (laughs) this is what my career basically boils down to that's it yeah yeah yeah. well that's awesome i i I had no idea how that worked before so that was really cool hearing about it um and that brings us on to uh what is always the final question uh which is catherine if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book which book would you take this is such a hard question (laughs) yeah i think that i would reread john steinbeck's east of eden okay uh because i was actually once stuck on an island with that book oh. um 
<laughs> I hadn't packed anything else. It was when I was traveling and I took it to Magnetic Island in Australia, which is a really cool place. And I remember for some reason we got stuck there longer than we wanted, probably something to do with a ferry or we'd forgotten to book a bus or something. And I sat on a beach and read that book cover to cover and um I kind of it was I I felt so immersed in it I mean even though it was kind of it's obviously about sort of depression era America and it's nothing to do with being on a beach in Australia and I remember being very very lost in it in a way that I hadn't been in a book in a long time and the characters really have stayed with me and I think it would take my mind off it because it was incredibly immersive um, but then maybe I didn't, you know, actually stand, being stuck on a desert island actually sounds quite attractive when you've got two children under five. So, um, you know, maybe I wouldn't really need that experience. Uh, it's But choosing your favourite book, I mean, that's just an impossible ask. Yes, um, it is. Maybe I'd choose a book that I hadn't read. I'd probably choose the latest thriller by Louise Candelish, who's my favourite thriller writer, okay. um, if I could get hold of it. And then that would be something new to read. Um, what What have other people said? Oh, all sorts. We've had, I mean, um, most, I think probably the most, uh, common author is, um, Jane Austen. She really? gets a lot of, a lot of Yeah. I mean, she is, I, yeah. I mean, my favorite Jane Austen is Emma. I uh-huh. would probably, if I had to choose a Jane Austen, it would be Emma. I named my daughter Emma after that book because I love it so much. So I guess, yeah, that would be up there for one of my favorite books too. Yeah, Austin, Austin's a popular pick. We've had the Bible, we've had um, loads and loads of books. We had the Argos catalogue. The Argos catalogue. Yeah, Melissa's crazy like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, all sorts. But, the, but yeah, <laughs> when people ask me and I'm like, you know what, I could tell you something now, it would be different next week. It would be different the week after, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know what you mean. It is like trying to pick. It's just an impossible question. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's why you like to throw it in there. <laughs> exactly. But John Steinbeck, it's, you know, it's, he's a classic, uh, a classic author with many um, incredible books, timeless books um, to his name. So a great choice. East of Eden is kind of like the Bible. I mean, a lot of it is allegorical. It's got that richness Careful. and strangeness. I mean, <laughs> okay, I'll stop it. Um, yeah, no, I, I know what you mean, though. It has that kind of philosophical element to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's something about the kind of otherworldly strangeness of it yeah, that I like. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for coming on the podcast and telling us all about your 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 new novel, The Other Mothers, and, and your old novel and your writing and uh, your work as a journalist. That was really cool. It's been awesome chatting with you. Yes, been fantastic to chat to you too. Thanks so much for having me. And for anyone listening, if you want to keep up with what Catherine is doing, you can follow her on Twitter at K underscore Faulkner or on Instagram and threads, because we're doing this now, at Catherine Faulkner Writes. To make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow along on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Facebook and threads, I guess. You can support the show on Patreon. And for more bookish chat, check out my other podcast, The Chosen Ones and Other Tropes. Thanks again to Catherine and thanks to everyone listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.